How's it going, folks? How's it going? I'm Brother Matthew, and this is Christian Coffee Time, where we sit down together to study the Word of God. And here we are on our postponed Q&A. So uh, go grab your Bibles, notepads, pens, and get all your questions and all that ready. And uh, feel free to fire away. First come, first serve. We answer them in sequence of order that they come in. So if you have anything you'd like to talk about, you got any questions, comments, issues, whatever, debate topics, whatever you'd like to talk about, go ahead and ask away and we'd be glad to hear from you. So, um, as you know, we had to postpone our Q&A from Saturday. Um, we had already had plans for that Saturday and we went into the big city as some of you may have seen, as I put some pictures of Toronto, uh, the skyline of Toronto up on there is where we're heading. And it was a long day, very long day. But uh, praise the Lord, everything went well. We got home safe. It was just a very long day. Uh, we got dehydrated, uh, no, overheated. It was just really tired on our feet all day. So it was a lot of fun. Uh, great time. We hardly ever get to Toronto. So it was, it was, it was great. Um, but here we are now doing our Bible study Q&A. And so what we do here, again, is it's just kind of an open floor. So is anything at all you'd like to talk about, please go ahead, ask away. I got a couple things on the board, but I don't have a lot. And these broadcasts only go for as long as we have involvement. So if you want to keep going, you got to gotta keep adding something um i have a few things i can think of to keep it going but i need your help anyways we went to toronto and uh, met up with a good friend of mine some of you may know her uh diana uh she comes in pops in sometimes in the chat she gave me something really neat i really like this this is really awesome uh so her family's from greece and she went to visit her family a little while ago over in greece and she went to athens now uh, she was going traveling around Greece. She went over to Athens, and she went up to Mars Hill. And some of you may uh, know about this. And the Bible talks over Paul the Apostle. He went to Athens and he went to Mars Hill, and he saw all the idols and stuff. And then he started preaching to the people, telling them the gospel of Jesus Christ. And refers to the altar to the unknown God. I perceive that thou art too superstitious. Or as I went through, I saw the altar to the unknown God. Him I declare unto you, the, uh, the God that you don't know, you don't understand. And he preached to them the gospel of Jesus Christ on Mars Hill. Well, she went to Mars Hill, and she brought back this, this little trinket. It's a soil from Mars Hill in Athens, Greece. So that's, that's really cool. I really like that. That's really awesome. Let me put it right up there. So yeah, and... Uh, he just got me uh, really thinking and uh, um, looking into the the different things that the Bible says of people, places, and things, and the sheer amount of proof that there is in the world, uh, archaeological discoveries to prove the Bible true, uh, documentation, uh, all kinds of evidence. There's so so much. Uh, these places are real the people were real the events actually happened just like it says like how much proof do you need and we talked about that a little while ago um but the question is how much proof do you need before you'd admit that it's true 
in a court of law, how many witnesses does there need to be? How many proofs of a case does there need to be to prove it as true in a court of law? Well, for us individually, how many proofs do you need before you'd admit that the whole word of God is true from cover to cover? So it's amazing to think of it. And uh, like they found Noah's Ark. They, they found the steel in Egypt that, depict, that, that has written the entire story of Joseph and how he saved Egypt. I mean, there, there's so much. You see the carvings on Mount Sinai dating back to the time of Moses. I mean, it's, it's all there, folks. It's all there. <laughs> Over in Israel, they have all the places and, and stuff that the Bible talks about. You can go see Mount Carmel. <laughs> you go to Mount Sinai. And as the Bible says, that when, when they came to Mount Sinai, that Mount Sinai was on fire. Mount Sinai is not a volcano, like the atheists try to explain. It's not a volcano. It's not a volcanic mountain. But the whole top edge of Mount Sinai is burnt black. Because the Bible says that God was there, and the fire of God was on the top of the mountain. Just like it says. It's just awesome. And... Yeah, I mentioned it, and uh, if you watched uh, uh, Pastor Paul's video from Sunday, um, you hear him talk about uh, the the uh, the anchors of the Roman ship, the Roman ship that was uh, transporting Paul to Rome. Uh, they were caught in that storm, and they got blown across, and they couldn't control, so they had to empty the ship, and then they wound up having to cut off the anchors. And the Bible says how deep the water was in that area, and they cut off the anchors, and they floated, and they bound against the, the, the sand, uh, sand shore, and they, the ship was busted up, uh, and they found themselves in the Isle of Malta. Now, there's a museum in, in the Isle of Malta. You can go there, and you can check this out that it, they actually found four anchors exactly where the bible says they cut them off and they they gathered up these anchors and a few other fragments uh, of the of the of a broken ship and they now have it on display in a museum in the isle of malta just like the bible says it, it's just it's awesome this is so exciting okay um all right, so I have a few things to talk about, but uh, we'll go with the comments first this morning. Okay, one second. <clears throat> okay, hey, good morning, good morning, good morning. How's it going? Okay, Kimberly says, what do you think about the stories of near-death experiences, afterlife experiences? What do I think about them? Well... I do not deny that they had an experience uh, of a spiritual sort. I don't deny that. I absolutely 100% believe that, uh, that people have and can have spiritual experiences. Um, it, it some, sometimes can be chalked up to a dream. Uh, it, it can be a vision. It can be an actual um, uh, experience full-on experience like when they're dying or something but here's the thing um yes they are having an experience but where it comes from is a whole nother matter um like can a person who's a say a 
a practicing Buddhist. They, they fully believe in Buddhism. That's their whole life. That's their religion. Are they going to have a near-death experience of going to heaven? No. No. No, no they can't. And so you want to take a look at the individual, what they believe, uh, the, their belief system. Like, for example, will a Jehovah's Witness see heaven? Will Mormons see heaven? Will Roman Catholics see heaven? Will Seventh-day Adventists see heaven? No, no. Uh, so you want to take a look at what they're believing. No person who's believing in a false God, false Jesus, a false gospel, a person who's believing in that stuff will never see heaven. Heaven is for the saints. Heaven is for the saved. It, it, it's it's, a, it's the, the reward of the saints. So no, no unbeliever is ever going to be seeing these things. Um, and vice versa, vice versa, for example, uh, a, pers- a person who's a born-again Christian will, uh, will never have an experience of going to hell. They will never get, you see quite often the people claim to be Christians, they would say, I had, I had an experience where I, I went to hell. No, 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 you didn't. So it's not possible. Uh, no unsaved will ever have an experience of going to heaven. No saved person have an experience of going to hell. That's just antithetical to what the word of God teaches. Now, now, will God allow them to have, say, a vision of, in some way, shape, or form, well, here's the thing. When it comes to signs and wonders, miracles, all these things, you also have to look at the context of why. Why? For what purpose? And you see, God will never just say, say, for example, you're on your deathbed and 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 your your eyes are open and you just see some of the sights of the glories of heaven. Okay. Uh Seeing heaven isn't going to convict you of your sins, isn't going to give you the knowledge of Jesus, isn't going to show you your need of salvation, that won't show you that you need to repent of your sins and believe the gospel. Uh, as the word of God says, as the Lord says, unto us is given the message of reconciliation. So if God it was going to uh, give you an experience in that way, like you said, for example, to draw them to the truth, if God was going to do that, it would be absolutely 100% backed up with the Word of God. Scripture would be there, the Bible would be there, uh, and there would be an explanation of this, and then the Lord would then draw one of his saints to come and explain to you the gospel, because unto us is given the message of reconciliation, and he will cause a divine uh, appointment, divine intervention, and uh, that's what it'll be. It, it, he'll spark your conviction, your understanding and all this. It, it, and then he'll bring his saints to come and teach you. That's what the Lord does. Um, he doesn't just give you uh, fleeting glimpses and just let you wonder. That, that, that doesn't happen by God. God doesn't do that. Um, as you see, that uh, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the understanding of the cross, the blood, understanding of the resurrection. It's understanding of the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, understanding of our sin. This is what saves us. The confession of the belief of the gospel of Jesus Christ from the heart. So um, if God is going to use those things, then the scripture will be there. God will always explain himself. He always explains. He doesn't do flippant things. Uh, there will always be scripture. There will always be absolute full clarity. Uh, there will be no wondering because God is not the author of confusion. 
if you even have to ask the question, I wonder if, then it wasn't. It wasn't of God. If you even have to ask the question, I wonder if, then it wasn't of God. There's something else going on. Um, so, now, what about, like, for example, for a backsliding Christian, a Christian that's wandering or struggling or for whatever reason, can the Lord use these things, uh, experiences and whatnot, to get your attention? He can. Yeah, he can. Uh, again, same thing. It's not just going to be fleeting glimpses. It's There's going to be scripture. There's going to be understanding. Uh, there's going to be clarity by the word of God. There's going to be uh, scripture present. So uh, that you will know that 100% absolutely this is what's going on. So you, ha you have to really scrutinize experiences. Um, not every experience is true. Uh, can the devils give experiences? Absolutely, 100%. Can devils give you visions of heaven? A seeming heaven, they can. They can create visions and images and things for your mind. They can make you believe you're in an alien colony on Mars. They can do that. Uh, they, can, they can make you believe you just shifted into a whole other dimension and whatever else. And there's all kinds of people and cities and it's uh, this full tactile, it feels physical. They can do that. They can make you believe all kinds of things. They can make you see all kinds of things. This is why you got to test the spirits to see if they're of God. You got to test everything. Scrutinize everything. Check, test everything. Every detail. Nothing is beyond uh, uh, beyond checking. Um, like one of the things people say, well, I saw Jesus. No, you probably did not. You probably did not. Uh, again, uh we see there's a there's a very clear concise uh, uh, point to what the Lord does, and well, for one, we weren't told that we would see we would see Christ before uh, the the second coming, but if if he was, there there would be a an extremely uh, concise detailed. What's the word? Oh, what's the word? My brain just shut down. Uh, uh, what he looks like and everything else according to the word of God. Because nearly every single explanation of Jesus that I hear from people goes against the very details of scripture. Um, so so often. Uh, that that uh, they, From what he looked like, the color of his skin, his hair, the nail prints are in his wrist, not his hands or whatever else. There's always, always something wrong with their explanation of, of Jesus that they saw. Um, can the devils masquerade as Jesus? 100%. Can, can they masquerade as the Holy Spirit? 100%. Can they masquerade as angels from heaven? 100%. So we gotta, gotta, gotta be careful about uh, about just jumping to assumptions, uh, jumping to conclusions of our own, um, of what we think is going on, because more often than not, it's most likely a trick. We got to be very careful. And besides, here's the thing. What's the point? Uh, well, do visions and experiences, are they more important than the Word of God? No, the Word of God is more important than experiences. But what if God himself uh, appeared in a cloud over me and I saw his throne and, and he spoke to me? Well, what, what, what if that? 
What does the Bible say? Uh, and such voice we heard from the holy mount, but we have a more sure word of prophecy. The scripture. Now you do well, you take heed. We have a more sure word of prophecy. This is more sure than even visions from heaven. This is more sure than even voices of God from the sky. This is more sure. So I don't really put much stock in experiences and whatnot because it's unnecessary. Completely unnecessary. I don't deny that they happen. Absolutely they do. I am not a cessationist by any stretch of the imagination. But it, again, when it comes down to it, this is more sure, this is more important, this is more valuable, this convicts of sin, this uh, leads someone to salvation, this teaches us all the wisdom and knowledge of God, this guides us in everything, and visions and dreams and experiences are nothing more than just kind of an attacked on added bonus if they do happen, but they're not really that overly important. So, that's kind of how I feel about it. That's kind of what I think about it. Uh, experiences are awesome. Uh, it's just, well, you say all experiences are awesome? In a, in a way, in a sense, because all it does is just reinforce the understanding that the spiritual realm is true. And it, it gives me a, a yet another a, a opportunity to use the word of God, to uphold it, and to, 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 to use it to test, to use it to prove, to use it to expose, to use it to refute, to use it to teach. Uh, so experiences, all, all they do, whether they're good or bad, they, they help reinforce the validity, the truth, the, the, the reality of the spiritual realm. It just, it's kind of like a spiritual cup of cold water in the face. It just, uh, sometimes we just seem to get a, a little too physical, a little too material. And these things, when they happen, it just wakes us up to the, to the reality of what's actually going on. So that's kind of my thoughts on that. I hope that makes sense. Um, again, when it comes to near-death experiences, I don't deny them. Some of them are true. Um, I've often read about the the deathbed experience of Charles Spurgeon. Was it Charles Spurgeon or D.L. Moody? Uh, actually, I think it was Moody. I think it was D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody was on his deathbed. And uh, it, it was time. The family was called. Now, I'm pretty sure it was Moody. Please correct me if I was wrong, if I'm wrong. Um, but yeah, and how the story goes that he was laying on his bed and he was, he was going, and his family was called, and uh, a bunch a bunch of Moody's children had had passed away when they were young, when they were kids, and it's reported that when he was on his when Deal Moody was on his deathbed, he called out to his called out to his wife. And I forget his wife's name. He called out to her. He says, I see the children. I see the children. They're coming to see me. And he's gone. Just like that. Just before he went, his eyes were opened. He saw the gates of heaven. And his children that had passed on before him were, were, were there waiting for him at the gate. And, and they, they were coming out to meet him. Did that really happen? Is that real? Is that true? 
personally, my opinion, I absolutely 100% believe that report. Absolutely. I 100% believe that that's true. I believe that's real. Um, well, people say, well, well, can you back that up with the word of God? Well, by the character of the Lord and the compassion and the mercy and... And the other thing too is this, uh, it, it's you, you do chalk it up a bit. There is that that uh, that theoretical aspect to it because again, it's not biblical doctrine. But it, the Bible says how we will meet other people, and Paul says, "I met a man in heaven above, whether in the body or the body, I cannot tell." So why would that be something that wouldn't happen? It, there's nothing in that, nothing in that whole report of the experience, nothing in that that contradicts the word of God. So, yeah. So again, it's this kind of you you got you got to test it, and what you what you want to do first is look at all the details. See, is there anything? No matter how small, no matter how insignificant, no matter how how minute, if anything contradicts the word of God, you got to throw it out. Nope. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter what it is. If there's any detail, no matter how small, that contradicts anything in the word of God, then you throw the whole thing out. So that's that. That's also my rule when it comes to any form of biblical discussion, biblical debate, discussion on experiences, spiritual gifts, doctrines, ideas, uh, theories, hypotheticals, whatever. If, if, if anything, no matter how small it is, contradicts the word of God, then the uh, that idea, teaching, doctrine, ideology, whatever, is wrong. It must be thrown out. So. All right. Um, let's go down through the comments. So I hope that answers your question, Kimberly, sufficiently. Um, again, it, it's it, if you disagree, we, we can disagree. If you agree, then that's great. Um, but uh, when it comes down to it, a lot of the experiences sound great. People have written books and pamphlets and done messages and YouTube videos and all kinds of stuff unexperienced and everything and they sound amazing they sound wonderful but again they're unnecessary it doesn't that doesn't mean they're not real but then what's what's the purpose what's the point god doesn't do things for no reason and if god is going to do something it's going to be 100 percent in line with his word in every single aspect and detail and it's up to us to examine these things right okay um but yes i do believe in experiences i do believe in signs and wonders i do believe in miracles absolutely um <laughs> i i honestly don't understand the cessationist i i really don't i i Frankly, their Christianity is sad. That's my view on it. A cessationist, their Christianity is sad. So, yeah. Anyways, all right, let's move on. Uh, okay, but uh, Kimberly also had the tact, tact on uh, addition. Uh, would God give someone that kind of experience to draw, to draw him 
and let him come back that have that opportunity well like for example uh i just thought of something just to add to that um i did on the night that i got born again saved i don't know how to explain it other than my eyes are opened and i saw what it was like two roads I saw the road leading to hell and I saw the road leading to heaven. It was as clear as day is that I saw what was going on. And as I talk about in my, in my testimony, I didn't see him, but I felt him and I knew he was there right beside me sitting in the passenger seat of the vehicle. And he was right there that close and i was terrified out of my mind because i knew it was god and i was so convicted of my sin i was so convicted of everything and he was staring at i could feel his eyes staring at me though i didn't see it i just you just know i don't know how to explain that and he was there the devils are on the other side absolutely freaking out and screaming everything i such an experience the experience alone does nothing the experience alone does nothing is nothing what led me to the cross what convicted me of my sins what opened my eyes to the truth of my need of salvation what what showed me that i need to repent of my sins and believe the gospel scripture it was the word of god it was bible that came up in my mind the bible verses the passages the scripture can just going through and it just like a flood came upon me and i remembered the scriptures and it convicted me and drew me and showed me what i need to do showed me who i was who christ is what i need to do and i repented of my sins and believed the gospel because of the word of god could could that have happened without the experience yes absolutely then what's with the experience an add-on because god does that that's just how he works and some people can deny that and, say, and, and argue that and say oh no 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 he doesn't well you weren't there i was i know what i saw i know what i heard i know what was going on and i and i'm here today because of it you can deny it all you want but you weren't there so the cessationist doesn't make sense but again it's the scriptures that do the work uh, the experience is kind of like the splash of water in your face to get your attention. And then it's the scriptures that grab your mind and heart. So that's how I've always kind of looked at it. All right. Okay, your explanation makes sense to me. Awesome, good. That means I'm doing my job. Alrighty. Uh, let's move on. Okay, so I asked the question again because repetition is the tool of the teacher. I ask the question again, what are the three points of Bible study? What are the Bible passages that explain them? And finally, what is the main principle of Bible study? Did anyone get it? Okay, Purely says, clear interprets the unclear. That's the principle. 2 Peter 1, 20-21, interpretation, there's only one. 2 Timothy 3, 16-17, application. And Acts 17.11, demonstration. Right on. There you go. Very good. Awesome. 
someone's paying attention. Okay, very good. Uh, that's exactly it. There's only one interpretation of the word of God. What it says is what it means. It doesn't matter what you think, what you feel, what you what you sense, or what you dreamt, visions, dreams, experiences. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. What it says is what it means. There's only one interpretation of the word of God. What it says, what it means. But it can be applied in multiple different ways. It can be applied mentally, physically, spiritually, circumstantially. There's multiple applications. But again, there's only one interpretation. What it says, what it means. And then it, all of this is for personal demonstration. To go live it, speak it, think it, do it. All right. Okay. Angela says, my pastor did a sermon on the Nephilim. Oh boy. I asked him if devils can create life. He said, we create life and nowhere in the Bible says devils uh, can't create life. That, that whole drives me nuts. But, well, the Bible doesn't say they can't. Uh, that whole thing that people use, well, the Bible doesn't say I can't do that. The Bible doesn't say the devils can't do this. The Bible doesn't say. All because it doesn't say it doesn't mean that they can. That logic there is extremely flawed. You're using, you're using the omission. You're using the omission as a proof of positive. That's literally atheistic logic. Well, you can't prove that the Big Bang didn't happen, so that means it did. Huh? That doesn't make sense. I That drives me nuts. I'm sorry, but that drives me nuts. That is so flawed. Besides, the Bible says God creates life from the womb. God creates the living souls. God does. And so are, so is he then implying that, that devils can create living souls? Because the, the living soul is created by God in the womb with the spark of life. So is he really implying that devils can create living souls? Huh? I, I, oh, okay. And let alone his entire premise on the Nephilim is obviously extremely flawed. Because you see, by Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 to 5, it says nothing, nothing about fallen angels mating with women and creating half-demon-human uh, hybrid monster thingies. That did not happen. Didn't happen. All you got to do is read it and do the word studies and you see what it says. It doesn't, I don't understand this mentality of so many people it doesn't make sense it is repeating catechism and not studying the word of god themselves let's take a look at psalms 139 13 to 16. it says god fashions and creates the life in the womb devils can't create life they're created beings they're created beings they can't create life and only god can create souls as we see in Ezekiel 18.4, God owns all the souls. So right there, by definition of, of using these passages that explain uh, God creating life, 
Devils don't do that. They can't do that. God has a power over life and death and creating life. He owns the souls. He is, he is the one that does it all. Devils can't do that. It doesn't make sense. And... Well, and, and uh, I've thought about this before. Why? Why are so many Christians so, so taken with the idea of the, the giant monster Nephilim things and all this crazy conspiracy type stuff. Why? Why are they so taken with that? Why do they have to believe that, that, that that's what it was? Why are they t so taken with that? Because they're bored with this. There, has, there needs to be something fantastic fantastical there has to be something incredible there needs to be something more because us being born living dying born living dying and mankind going down through no that that and and like how the bible explains it is isn't sufficient they need more fantasy they need fantasy and that's what much of these uh, spiritual conspiracy theories are. It is created fantasies to spark the imagination of the Christians because they're bored with the same old Christianity. They need something more. And you'll often note, uh, you'll see it often, is uh, these, these uh, uh, professed Christians, it's all they talk about is these religious conspiracy theories, these religious fantasies. That's that's all they're so taken with. The Nephilim and the Nephilim monsters and everything else. Uh, that That's all they live for. That's all they want. But if you read the Bible, nowhere, nowhere in the Word of God does it teach any of that kind of stuff. And also you want to see where does it come from, the origin. Just like we were talking about near-death experiences. You look at the origin of it, uh, the background, the, uh, the originator, the author of the experience, the, the kind of person, their belief system. And same as these things like the Nephilim thing, where did that come from? It didn't come from the Bible. Where did it come from? What teaches it? So just, just some thoughts on that one. But, uh, but again, the, those people who teach the Nephilim monster thing, it, it, just, it just goes to show me they don't study their Bibles properly. They are regurgitating catechism and they are not studying their Bibles. Because if you study your Bible, if you study Genesis 6 verses 1 to 5, you study that passage, you do the word studies in the Greek and the Hebrew, you look it all up and you see what does the Bible say and you compare scripture with scripture, only scripture with scripture. There is literally no way, no how, no shape or form that you can come away with that believing in the giant monster Nephilim thingies. It's not possible. You have to monkey with the word of God. You have to not dive deep into this word studies. You have to not compare scripture with scripture. And you have to compare scripture with catechism to get to that. Just saying. Uh, when I questioned him, he said we should be peacemakers and just be content that there's a lot of interpretations. You see right there. It, are there multiple interpretations? No, there's only one interpretation. 
What it says is what it means. He's interpreting uh, his version through catechism, not through Bible, not through Bible. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He doesn't know what he's talking about on this one. And I'm not bashing him. I'm just saying he clearly did not do his homework on this one. He clearly did not. Um, like, for example, let's just, let's just go to it for sake of argument. Because some people say, well, how do you know? Someone listening in on a replay or whatever, on the, they, they may not have heard me talk about this before. Let's just go over it again. Just for sake of argument, let's go over it again. Grab your Bibles. Grab a notepad. Give him these notes. Actually, I have a, I have a video. I have a video that I did. It's in the playlist according to the Bible. It's in the playlist according to the Bible. Scroll down. You'll see one on the Nephilim. And, and there's one right, right next to the, uh, the Book of Enoch. Those two go together where it's specifically a video explaining the Nephilim according to the Bible and explaining the book of Enoch from the Bible. Um, you, you can get the notes from that one. But it's very easy to do if you just read, what does it say? And it came to pass, what does that mean? When, the, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth. So time is going, human population is booming, they're spreading across the world, and daughters are born unto them. We see, so they're marrying and giving a marriage, and we see the pop, human population growing. Okay. While this is going on, verse 2 that the sons of God, hold up. Nowhere in the entirety of the Word of God does it say that fallen angels, devils, demons are called sons of God. Nowhere in the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, that nowhere are the fallen ever called sons of God. And sometimes the argument comes in, well, well, and then the one it was is there were other angels. After the great, great rebellion, there were other angels who were the sons of God that they saw and then they fell to. No, that was a one-time event. Bible says it, it, it happened once, not multiple times. Sons of God. Only angels of God are called that, and righteous servant, human servants of God are called that. Male servants of God are called that. Like uh, like the prophets and the disciples, they're called uh, children of God, sons of God. Note, note that it's lowercase s. So servants. That the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair. Stop. The word fair in the Hebrew is righteous goodness, not beauty. That's the meaning of it. It's righteous goodness, not beauty. And they took them wives of all which they chose. Uh, Jesus says that that the angels neither marry nor are given a marriage, but but uh, but that uh, as that they are spirit, that they don't procreate. Jesus said that in the Gospels. Now we also see the sons of God, so the daughters of men, they were fair, the righteous, righteous, good females. So sons of God, so the context here, because also can angels create life no only god can create life only god creates living souls you see many people fail to think of that and say well well the devils took over the bodies of the people and they created these these beings no they didn't because devils can't create living souls anyways 
something wise which they chose and the lord says my spirit shall not always strive with man verse three this is now the 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 prophecy of the flood because in 120 years will be a flood it took 120 years to build the ark verse four there were giants in the earth in those days the word giant in the hebrew is nephilim and you'll note that in the very definition that it just means an abnormally big person that there's zero mystical divine connotation to that it just means an abnormally big person like Andre the Giant, Robert Wadlow, the NFL linebackers, world championship strongman powerlifters, NBA basketball players, Goliath of Gath. It's just abnormally big people. It's genetics, giantism genetics. Giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God, righteous male servants of God, came in into the daughters of men, the righteous female servants of God, and they bare children to them, same, same became mighty men, which are full men of renown. That uh, says nothing about fallen angels creating half-human demon hybrid monster thingies. That never happened. That never happened. Uh, okay, uh, my... my my option is everyone is so easily offended. So pastors and elders want to make people happy in the church. They don't want to say anything definite. People will get mad and leave. Yeah. Yep. When you, when you burst their bubble, when you burst their bubble and, uh, and you, you show them that what they are saying, what they are believing, uh, goes against the word of God. It'll show if they are teachable or if they're unteachable, show if they're sheep or goats by their reaction. The goats get mad at correction. Sheep love correction. Sheep will accept and acknowledge correction. Sheep will investigate and search it out. The goats will just get mad and butt their heads against it and just and start braying that you're just uh, sowing division. That's what goats do. So, yeah. So, what do you do with all of this? Nothing. Nothing you can do. You show them the truth and leave it. Leave it. Thankfully, the whole Nephilim thing, argument, whatever, isn't a sal salvationary uh, topic, isn't a salvationary thing, so Christians can agree to disagree on that, though I hate that phrase with every fiber of my being, I hate it, but that's where it comes down to, that uh, on secondary issues, on the secondary doctrines, you have the primary doctrines and you have the secondary doctrines. The primary doctrines are the ones that in and of themselves are salvationary. They affect your salvation. If you get one of these wrong, you go to hell. The secondary doctrines are ones that are not salvationary. We can wind up sometimes disagreeing on these, uh, but we're still born again uh, fellow believers, brothers and sisters in Christ. So we got to remember not to elevate secondary issues to our primary level. So, yeah. And on that note, <clears throat> I was wondering what to talk about this morning as I was getting my notes ready. And uh, I checked my notifications. And I go through, all, I check Reddit, I check Twitter, I check YouTube, I check Instagram, I check Facebook, all these things to see if there's comments, check my Gmail, make sure there's no emails and all the stuff to see what's going on. And I kind of glean stuff from here and there just to get a, okay, yeah, I'd like to talk about that. Yeah, I'd like to talk about that. And then something came up on YouTube, a comment, an individual uh, left a comment 
on one of my community posts on YouTube. Now, this is why I set, not just one of the reasons, but this is why I set all comments are held for review. Um, as quite often, it, nearly every video I do, every broadcast I do, once once it's done, and it's done processing, and, and once it's done, I get slammed with four to five uh, disgusting, immoral bots. Uh, uh, bot comments, uh, auto bot comments, where, where they have links to horrible websites and links and stuff. They, they just come in and they just leave their comments. So I, I have to, that I click on the user block and then report, block report, block report on, on all of them. Uh, but all of their stuff goes to, so it doesn't go public. So you can't see it publicly. So all comments that on community posts, all comments on videos and broadcasts are held for review. Now, this person... This individual left a comment, uh, which I want to talk about for a minute, and this is this is why I titled this broadcast, What is a True Christian? What's a true Christian according to the Word of God? Because according to this person, <laughs> true Christians do not get themselves amped up on caffeine. And an addictive and mind-altering substance. This is a form of drunkenness. <laughs> like cocaine, marijuana, and opioids, etc. Which is forbidden. Think about it. The flesh wars against the spirit. Coffee. Coffee is the same as drunkenness and cocaine. Really? Really? Okay. Um. Mm. Tasty sin. Okay, let's talk about that one. <laughs> well, obviously this person doesn't really think it through. And this isn't the first time I've gotten this kind of comment. Uh, I, th this is now the fourth, I want to say fourth time that someone has said this to me, condemning coffee, condemning caffeine. And um, if we take a look at this, uh, where does this stem from? Where does this come from? Uh, Seventh-day Adventists. 99% uh, of the time, it's Seventh-day Adventists. That, that Because it's right in their doctrinal statement. Believe it or not, it's right in their statement of faith, their doctrinal statements, uh, that, uh, that caffeine is forbidden. Uh, as well as, I believe, if I'm correct, Jehovah's Witnesses. But they don't really push that one as much as Seventh-day Adventists. Uh, that caffeine is forbidden, caffeine is a sin, because caffeine is a drug. Because it's mind-altering. Um, so is sugar. Uh, so is uh, shiitake mushrooms. You know shiitake mushrooms you can get at the grocery store, you can cook them up for your steak. You know shiitake mushrooms are, are highly hallucinogenic. 
if you eat too much of them. Uh, so is nutmeg. Nutmeg's a hallucinogenic if you have too much of it. Uh, so is dehydration. So is dehydration sin because it alters your mind? So is sleep deprivation. That's an hallucinogenic. That makes you hallucinate. Sleep deprivation. So is sleep deprivation sin? I mean, how far do you take this? What is this nonsense? But, okay, the coffee bean. So you're telling me God created sin. Ooh, there you go. That's where it comes down to. But what did the Lord say? What did God say? That through the Apostle Paul, he said, he said that nothing in and of itself is unclean. Nothing of itself is unclean. It's the usage. It's the abuse. Abusing the thing. As you take a look at some of this stuff, what Jesus says in Matthew 15. Why do ye also transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? For God commanded, Honor thy father and mother, and he that curseth father or mother, let him die the death. But ye say, Whosoever shall say to his father and mother, It is a gift, but whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, and honor not his father or his mother, he shall be free. Thus have ye made the commandment of God of none effect by your tradition, ye hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Because what does the Bible teach? In the book of Acts, it, it, we see the uh, in the Apostolic Council, in, in Acts 15, is it Acts 15? Where they gather together to discuss about the Gentiles. What should we do with the Gentiles? Uh, uh, should we put a yoke of burden upon their shoulders and neither we nor our forefathers could bear? But rather, we should tell them what? abstain and stain from fornication from idolatry from eating blood and uh, so we see that nowhere in the bible does it teach that 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 we have a dietary law commandment in the new testament the dietary laws were for the jews it's for the jews nowhere do we see dietary laws or restrictions other than eating meat offered to idols and eating blood that's it the Bible does not forbid any other dietary laws. We are not under the law, but under grace. So this this person here and the Seventh-day Adventists and the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons and the Catholics and all of them, they think they're honoring God by their doctrines of traditions. And they know nothing of grace. They know nothing of biblical teaching and instruction. They know nothing about pairing scripture with scripture, rightly dividing the word of truth. And they teach for doctrines the traditions of men. Water has an effect on you. If you're dehydrated, you drink water, it affects your mind. Not drinking water, it affects my Drinking too much water will kill you. This person knows nothing about what they're talking about. And just like modern day Pharisaical individuals who attempt to be good Jews by, by their behavior because their phylacteries are so big and they're prancing down the streets like the Pharisees with blowing trumpets before them. Look what I'm doing, look what I'm doing just like this oh i'm such a good person thank you lord because i don't sin like these other people 
just like that like jesus taught about the two men went to the temple to pray and the pharisee that thought himself better than others who went home justified oh they think themselves better because they think they're honoring god by their traditions by their by, by their doing and not doing but what does the bible teach what does jesus say what did jesus say in matthew 15 in verse 10 and he called the multitude and said to them hear and understand verse 11 not that which goeth into the mouth defileth the man not that which goeth into the mouth defileth a man but that which cometh out of the mouth this defileth a man boom there you go it's not that which entereth the mouth that defileth the man but what comes out of the heart for out of the heart proceeds the cursings and drunkenness and immorality and and blasphemies and all, all sin comes out of that out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks it's not what goes in that defiles but what comes out how does coffee defile a man it doesn't but like the word of god teaches everything is in moderation because yes some things are addictive like sugar is addictive that that guy then this guy here that condemns coffee who condemns tea as sin equal to cocaine he better never eat sugar he better never get dehydrated he better never get sleep deprived he better never eat shiitake mushrooms or any any other thing or any other food or drink or substance that could ever ever affect his mind in any way shape or form he better go live as a monk in a stone monastery somewhere eating eating only dry dry beans and water Do you see the hypocrisy, the sheer absolute hypocrisy of the of the legalistic Pharisaical Judaizer types, these individuals who want to bind you to the law, bind you to law keeping. They have no concept of grace. They have no concept of the teachings of Christ. They cherry pick the the scriptures. They twist the passages and they create they, they, they create teachings for their own personal benefit. Now, like I said, the vast majority of people that do this, that condemn caffeine like this, uh, that are openly against that, are Seventh-day Adventists. And um, why, why are they like that? Well, Seventh-day Adventists will also teach you that eating meat is sin, as Ellen White taught that, that the founder of the Seventh-day Adventist religion. Uh, the reason for this is because Ellen White, uh, the, who is the, the creator of that cult, was a baptismal regenerationist and a law keeper. That she uh, she believed that that God spoke to her personally and told her these doctrines that of the investigative judgment doctrine that the Seventh Day Adventists uh, have to hold themselves to keeping the keeping the Ten Commandments. They are, they are the the hyper strict sabbath keepers and law keepers and they got abstained from all these things because 
when they stand before God at the great white throne judgment, that God will investigate their life to see if they're worthy enough to enter heaven. This person here, Stephen Roche or whatever his name is, believes that uh, he is honoring God by his his personal restrictions because that will that will help add to his ability to enter heaven yeah because coffee is salvationary true Christians <laughs> don't drink coffee so you see right there, by his words, by his own words, of his own statement, true Christians don't drink coffee. So therefore, coffee is a definition of Christianity. It's a salvationary topic. It's a salvationary aspect. Yeah, because if you drink coffee, you're a terrible sinner and you're not saved. Do you see that? Do you see that? Pay close attention to the way people talk. Pay close attention to their words. Close attention to how they are forming their sentences, what they're saying, because that will also speak volumes of their background, what they're all about. Now, in this as well, just because now this person's got me all stirred up, because this is absolutely hilarious it's one of the reasons why every single broadcast that i do i always open it with that because years ago i had a bunch of people jumping down my throat attacking me because you're tapping on your bible you're drumming on your bible and that is demonic they were going nuts attacking me and condemning me because i i, I tapped my fingers on my bible because you're drumming and drumming is sin and you're drumming on your bible that's demonic they literally were saying that they were literally attacking me for that and also why i i wear these things on my wrist i often wear these these kinds of stuff oh that's because i like it it's really cool and but also to annoy the pharisees because i literally had people jumping all over me condemning me calling me demonic a satanist a satan worshiper calling me a witch calling me the antichrist and a false prophet because i wore bracelets <laughs> i had an individual call me a false prophet satan worshiper because i wore a scarf on a broadcast because their pastor doesn't wear scarves but i did so i'm of the devil he literally said that you you you'll come across all kinds of crazy crazy pathological individuals and they'll be creating laws and traditions they'll be creating personal doctrines personal uh, beliefs based upon their feelings and opinions and experiences and visions and dreams and everything else but this is this is why we need to uh, examine what is a true christian 
according to the word of God, not according to church tradition, not according to denominational distinctives, not according to catechisms, commentaries, councils, and creeds, and everything else. What is a true biblical Christian? What is a Christian? Well, by this, we have to examine and see, okay, am I a Christian because I did a thing or I don't do a thing? The I did a thing Christianity is works-based. True Christianity is I did nothing. I do nothing. It's all him, none of me. What is a true Christian? A true Christian, well, well, by definition, Christian is a follower of Christ, disciple of Christ. They were called Christians first at Antioch. You see people say, well, I don't, I, I'm, I'm not a Christian. I'm a believer in Jesus. Christian is a title and, uh, um, Bible acts. They were called Christians first at Antioch means follower of jesus christ a disciple of jesus christ it's in the bible god gave it god defined it that is the title is given by god christian disciple of jesus christ follower of jesus christ now okay by that okay what does it mean to follow jesus christ and who is jesus christ according to the word of god because every single belief system in the world has a form of jesus so who is jesus according to the bible jesus is the christ the mighty god manifested in the flesh he doesn't need you, he doesn't need anyone else, and he doesn't need his mommy to do anything for him either. He alone is God manifested in the flesh. That's who Jesus is. And he went to the cross for our sins. He shed his blood and died on the cross for our sins. Not so you could get a new Mercedes and not so that you could uh, also, also help him save you. He doesn't need anything else. He did it for your sins. And he suffered and, and suffered on the cross, shed his blood and died, was buried for three days, rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ by grace, through faith, by belief alone, period, you're born again, saved, and you are a Christian by definition. That's what the Bible says. And, you're not, and the Christian title isn't restricted or isn't removed or affected by your doing or not doing. It is only affected by whether or not you have believed or not believed on the only begotten Son of God. By grace, through faith, by belief alone. It doesn't matter what you do or don't do. When did the prodigal son cease to be a son of his father? How are works brought into as a salvationary aspect when the Bible says it's not by works, not by righteous works, not by works of the law, not by anything you could do, but it's by grace through faith, by belief. Grace, the unmerited favor of God. Unmerited. That means you didn't merit it. You didn't earn it. It's not a reward. I don't deserve it. But he gave it to me anyways because he so loved me. By faith, which is believing trust. Faith is not works. Faith is believing trust. So by the unmerited favor of God, by believing trust, are you saved? And that not of yourselves. Not of yourselves. Not of yourselves. So what is a true Christian? One who believes in the Lord God, Jesus Christ, by grace, through faith, through belief alone. That's it. That's what a true Christian is. But a true Christian doesn't drink coffee. Well, I feel bad for you. I'm 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 grieved for you. Your Christianity is sad. Because I'm telling you right now, 
if the Lord Jesus Christ came to my home, knocked on my door, came in, I'd offer him a cup of coffee. And he would have a cup of coffee with me. Now, people, guess you would do what? Well, let me just ask you something. You see, you condemn, you, you condemn coffee in the same vein as alcohol, right? Right? And I just want to show you something. Now, this is going to open a can of worms, but you know me and I'm not afraid of worms. So, let's take a look at this. In Proverbs chapter 31, I just want to show you something just for a moment. And all of the hyper-legalistic Pharisee types and all these are just going to lose their mind by what I'm about to show you. They're going to go nuts and condemn me and start bringing arguments and finding, trying to find loopholes and find ways to condemn me and say all kinds of stupid things. They do it all the time, all the time, all the time. They always do this to me. But I'm just, all I'm going to do is just read you a Bible passage and tell you what the, what the meanings of the words are. That's all I'm going to do. I'm not going to tell you what to believe. I'm not going to attack anything. I'm just going to read this passage and I'm just going to explain the actual, very Hebrew definition meaning of the words here. Okay? That's all I'm going to do. All right? Proverbs chapter 31, verse 6. Because alcohol is sin, right? Well, actually, the Bible says drunkenness and inebriation and something being a power over you is sin. But we see in Proverbs 31, verse 6. Proverbs 31, verse 6. Give strong drink unto him that is ready to perish, and wine unto those that be of heavy hearts. Let him drink and forget his poverty and remember his misery no more. Okay, now... What does strong drink mean in the Hebrew? Because the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, New Testament is written in Greek. So we take a look at the uh, the uh, the Hebrew for the the Strong's Hebrew here. It gives you the, uh, help and what the meanings of the words are. When you take a look here, now I have open on my phone right here. This is the um, it's called My Sword. You can download it. Uh, 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 of the internet it's a great program where you can do bible studies on here and you can look up the greek definitions and the hebrew definitions you can do really good bible studies uh, based off of this program and it gives you the strong's uh, uh, the there's the greek and the strong's hebrew uh, numbers here you click on this and it tell you the meanings of these things now in proverbs 31 verse 6 this is give strong drink now strong drink has a number here you click that and it brings up this box that then tells you according to the hebrew definition what strong drink so when the when proverbs was originally written in hebrew this is the actual words and the meaning that behind what they were writing that when it was translated to english it was translated as strong drink but what does strong drink mean in the original hebrew uh, uh, shekar shekar which means strong drink 
intoxicating drink, fermented or intoxicating liquor, an intoxicant that is intensely alcoholic liquor. Mm. Okay. So we got a bit of a problem here because all of the hyper legalistic pharisaical um, types say alcohol is sin, but God said, God said, give strong drink to him which is perishing and wine to him which is of a heavy heart. Now, what does wine mean in that same passage? What does wine mean? Wine. Origin from an unused root meaning of effervescence from an unused root. Okay. Uh, wine as fermented by implication intoxication. Wine. Like alcoholic wine. Wine. Fermented wine. Uh oh. Uh oh. Uh oh. You, the legalists, you hear, you hear, you hear them huffing and puffing and snorting and ruffling through their books and their Bibles and they're and they're snorting because they're getting so mad because how could you say that? So are you saying drunkenness is okay? Are you saying God made and God made drunkenness? No, 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 no. You see, God made sh things sugary. God made sweet things. God doesn't make addictions. God doesn't make drunkenness god doesn't make drunkards god doesn't make fornicators god made that the form of the of the body to be pleasing and god god made you know the marriage bed but but it's sin and it's our own sinful flesh and the enemy that brought that brought in lust and fornication and adultery god didn't make uh, sin we abuse we misuse god made food we make gluttony god made things pleasing we abuse it we misuse it we take it out of its of its of its uh created use and abuse it god said give strong drink Intensely alcoholic liquor. God said, give strong drink unto him that is ready to perish. So our, so by definition, alcohol in and of itself is not sin. Drunkenness, inebriation is sin. By the same argument, coffee is not sin. Addiction to coffee is sin. Food is not sin. Gluttony is sin. You see how this goes? See how this works? See how this works? It's not that which enters the man that defiles him, but that which comes out of the heart. That's what it says. But you see the hyper-legalists who want to control everything, 
like the Pharisees, the Pharisees who created additional rules. Like, for example, that the, they so protected the Sabbath that you can't do anything that you weren't even allowed to eat the chicken egg that was laid on the Sabbath because the chicken did work on the Sabbath. And they go so far as to even bind God to their own rules that they condemned Jesus for healing the, the individuals on the Sabbath because miracles of healing on the Sabbath is work. It's the same logic. It's the same logic. They're, they're hyper-restrictive, legalistic nonsense where they create new laws, they create new new controls, new protocols, and teach it as doctrine. Because they don't like it, therefore it's sin. Oh, and the, the name of that app that I was using, uh, if you go online, um... Yeah, it's called My Sword. My Sword. You can get the program for your desktop computer. It's called E Sword. E, the letter E dash sword. E Sword. And for mobile, it's called My Sword. It has tons and tons of options and programs and stuff that come with it. It's an extremely helpful, very helpful program to have on your phone. I have it with a bunch of other stuff. I have it with, uh, you can get uh, through the App Store. The Play Store, the App Store, you can get uh, Matthew Henry's commentary, which is fantastic. Great stuff in there. Again, you, you want to check everything. Um, and tons of other programs. It's it's really good. Um, you can also get the Hebrew and Greek. Hebrew and Greek interlinear uh, Bible uh, uh, program from the App Store as well. Tons of, tons of great stuff in there. All right. Any co questions, comments, issues, anything, please go ahead, talk away. Okay, as Paris Vaughn here says, FYI, my sword is only available as a third-party app from their website, not in, not in the App Store. Yeah, so you, like I said, you get it from their website. Just go into Google, Google, Google search my sword, my sword Bible program. And the, you'll see their website, My Sword, and it'll, it'll prompt you through to download. It's free. It's free, and that's what's fantastic about it too. Okay. All right. Let's go down through. All right. Uh, Purely says mine's organic, so it's less sinful. Oh. Good for you. You're more holy than I am. Your phylacteries are much bigger than me. <laughs> and Jewel says, I guess prescription meds must apply too. Medicine debate. Okay, there you go. Let's go for it. Is medicine, is the pharmacy sorcery? Like so many of these hyper-legalistic Pharisee, pharisaical conspiracy theorist Judaizers say they are. Uh, is medicine no no uh, he that is sick needeth a physician as the bible says so uh medicine and all of this is fine it is taught in the bible as well as there's medical science in the bible medicine is uh it's it's fine it's needed there's great benefits from it 
Okay, but what is sorcery by definition? Is so many people say, well, if you go to the pharmacy, get aspirin. Aspirin is sorcery. Tylenol and ibuprofen is sorcery. Getting your medical uh, uh, medical uh, drugs, uh, medicine and stuff for your ailments and stuff, that's sorcery. No, it's not. No, it's not. Sorcery, by definition, sorcery is substance use for spiritual religious reasons. If you're taking it on purpose to get high, to have the experiences, to get in touch with the aliens and whatever you want to call them, the spirits and all the powers and all the stuff, to, to have those experiences, that's sorcery. Using it for religious reasons, like witch, like in witchcraft, like in shamanism, they take the ayahuasca and all that other kind of stuff. They get they get high to have these these out of body experiences, to have all these experiences. That's sorcery. But you're taking medicine for an illness. That's not sorcery. So the so the vast majority of people that are throwing around. The whole sorcery thing regarding the pharmacy. Well, pharmacy, that comes from pharmacaea, which is sorcery. You, they clearly do not know what sorcery actually is. It's substance use for the, the, the purpose of spiritual or and or religious reasons. That's what sorcery is. So no, there's nothing wrong with taking medicine. Nothing wrong. But abusing it is the problem. Angela says, I'm drinking coffee right now. <laughs> you lost your salvation. Okay, let's go on. Uh, <laughs> Angela says, everything you eat or drink has an effect on you. Right, right, it does. Sugar affects the brain, so I guess sugar's sin. I guess God's a sinner because he created sugar. Uh-oh, uh, that's too close to Calvinism. Okay. Okay, Jules says, my friend redressed redressed me in her in her clothes to go to church with her as I must not wear trousers. A long skirt was appreciated. I got quite offended and asked her, Do you think Jesus cares what I'm wearing? As long as it's clean, smart, and appropriate. Really, does Jesus care if I wear trousers? I think not. Actually, that's an interesting one because the only the only passage in the Bible that says anything about judging another person by, by what they're wearing is when the Lord says not to judge them by what they're wearing. For you see one man come in with the colorful clothing, you give you give him a seat, and you see another man come come in and in vile raiment and, and you and you ignore him. It, it see, Jesus condemns that. It condemns that as hypocrisy and sin. That that you would look down another person by what they're wearing. Now, is there a, is there a point? Is there a line where you see where clothing would be judged if it's immoral, where it's extremely form fitting, or it's or you got skin showing and you're wearing your crop tops or whatever? You see indecent clothes, and stuff that's sexualized clothing. Well, you got a bit of a problem. But if it's just pants and it's not and it's not sexualized, well then, what's the problem? 
You see, by that logic, people go, oh, you, you can't wear pants. Well, if you were to go back to the 1800s, they would condemn you because you're not wearing your giant, massive three-piece suits and what the women wore in the 1700s and 1800s. Go back far enough, everyone condemns everyone by what they're wearing. When Jesus says, judgment after the appearance. If we would all be condemned by, by some denominations because they believe playing music in church is sin. Seriously. But we see in the Bible, it says not to be like that. Judge and after the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. You judge by the word of God. Does God care about what you're wearing? Only if what you're wearing is in and of itself inappropriate by sexualized or whatever. See some, uh, some women going to church with low cut shirts or crop tops and super skin tight uh, skin suits so they can show off their bodies. That's immoral. Clothe up, cover up, and, and it, does it matter if the cloth in of itself is stitched up as individual legs or if it's all open? That, that, doesn't, that doesn't matter if it's skirt or pants, so as long as it's appropriately covered. So yeah. Man, I'm, I'm open all the can of worms today. Okay. Angela says, in my church, some of the men make their wives wear dresses. Sometimes I feel guilty for wearing jeans as though I'm not as submissive as them. Submissive to what? God's law or theirs? I'm not teaching rebellion. I'm not teaching anarchy or any of that kind of thing. What I'm, what I'm trying to get across is the insanity of the Pharisees teaching for doctrines the traditions of men. Teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. What, uh, what they feel, what they believe, their opinions, their feelings, their catechisms, their traditions taught as equal to or surpassing the law of God. Adding on to scripture. When God says don't do that, don't add to scripture, don't subtract from scripture. But what it says, what it means. But what they're doing is they're adding to the word of God additional laws and protocols that God did not teach. Condemning things that God gave as sin and, and twisting the teachings of Christ and changing them to fit their own personal denominational distinctives. Yeah. So now and you want to now examine though, why are you wearing what you are wearing? Because now, does God care what you wear to church? No, no, he doesn't. Because if he did, well, then I guess uh, missionaries have got a hard time because all of the natives are sinning because they're not wearing three-piece suits. Where, where's the three-piece suit law? Um, well, Second Opinions, chapter three. Um, you got to wear a tie to church. Why? I hate ties. I, I honestly do. I, I hate ties. They're restrictive. They're uncomfortable. I don't like them. 
I'll wear them from time to time when the weather's cool, cool enough because I overheat really easily. And when I'm wearing a tie, I overheat like crazy. And then I wind up sweating and I sweat in my good shirt and it's, it's uncomfortable and I don't like it. So I don't wear ties, during, especially during the war, warmer seasons. I don't wear ties at all. Um, but some people swear by you. You got to wear a tie to church. Why? Because it's... That's what you're supposed to wear. But why? Where'd that come from? Why? Because that's just our tradition. Your tradition. Not mine. God doesn't care what you wear. Now, but here's the thing, though. Here's a good, good, good uh, argument, though, is to consider... Would, do you wear nice clothes to your friend's wedding? Do you wear nice clothes to a funeral? Do you wear nice clothes when you go over to your friend's house for dinner? Why wouldn't you wear nice clothes in the gathering of the saints together to worship God? So it's, it's, out, of the, it's out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If you're going to church and you're wearing grungy, slobby clothes and all this stuff, it kind of does speak about your attitude of the gathering. But like, for example, let's just say, uh, let's say you, you had to pull an extra long shift the night before and you didn't really have time to get changed before going to church. Does that mean you can't go to church because you're still in your grubby work clothes? No, go to church. Going to church is more important than changing. Get yourself out there, get yourself to the gathering, and serve the Lord, and uh, sing the praises, worship Christ, gathered together with the believers. That's, that's, that's the very definition of grace. We're not held by law. We're not held by law. God doesn't care what you wear. It, God, he cares about the attitude of the heart. He cares about what comes out of the abundance of the heart. He doesn't care, care about what goes in. He cares what comes out. Because if what is coming out is honorable and respectful and loving of Christ, that will affect what is going in. You see, the works-based, the legalists, the Pharisees focus on the outward, and they think the outward will control and affect the inward, when it's actually the complete opposite. You focus on the inward. You focus on yourself. Get yourself right with the Lord and worship and honor and service of the Lord and study of the word and the praises of him. And, and you focus on the inward. That affects the outward. Out of you will flow springs of living water. Out of you will, will flow the good works and the deeds. It's not what goes in. It's not what enters the man that defiles it, but what comes out of the heart. You see how that works? But the works-based salvationist, the legalistic Pharisee types, the Judaizer types, they focus on the outward. They flip and invert it all around. They think no, no, not drinking and, and not eating and the not wearing or the wearing, that, that this will make me holy. No. No. That doesn't. Why do your disciples eat with unwashing hands? The Pharisees attack Jesus. And again, he says, it's not what enters the man that defiles him. It does, it, the, the dirty hands doesn't mean anything. That doesn't do anything. 
Who's more holy? The, the, the Western cultured, three-piece suit-wearing, restrictive, legalistic Pharisee who, do, who does all the protocols? Who's more holy, him or, or, the, or the new Christian uh, uh, jungle native that got saved by the missionaries sitting in a loincloth with a bone through his nose? Who's more holy? comes out of the heart I need to calm down okay okay Angela says they say I shouldn't make myself look too good because I'm trying to attract men here we go again it's it's not what you paint yourself up to look at it that means nothing looking nice why because I want to look nice for church why because I want to look nice for God. I want to look my best for the Lord. I Because I want to because I love him. Do you look your best for your friends or your family? Do you look your best for your spouse? Why wouldn't you want to look your best for God? Well, you're, you're, you paint yourself up and you're attracting people. That just shows they got a problem in their heart because that's all that they think about. So ignore them. Ignore the legalists. Seriously, ignore them. Well, the, but the Bible says, says, says I shouldn't offend them. Ah! It say, what it says about the offending others, the word offend doesn't mean like woke triggered. What offended means as a, how a weaker brother or a younger, younger one in the faith would look up to you at, as an example that what you do causes them to, beca- to become uh, troubled by, uh, to the point where they would turn away and leave the faith. That's what that means. Not that it, what you're doing offends me. No. You're just being an idiot. So ignore those individuals. Ignore the legalists. Ignore the Judaizers. Ignore the Pharisees. Ignore them. They don't know what they're talking about. They don't understand grace. They're trying to teach for, for doctrines, the traditions of men. What they're saying, they don't understand. They don't know what they're talking about. And Angela says, how can I focus on telling people about Jesus and trying to follow all these rules? And therein is the point. You'll note that the Pharisaical legalistic Judaizers, it, it rarely do they ever evangelize. Because they're all focused on themselves. Okay. Oh, comments jumped. <sighs> <clears throat> okay. Um, I gotta calm down for a second. My heart rate monitor is probably spiking through the roof, <laughs> and I'm on caffeine. Uh oh, I lost my salvation. Okay. Um, okay. Force Recon says, "What does Amen mean?" And why do pastors want you to say it when they speak? It's not that they want you to say it. It's, yeah, it has kind of come the uh, rule of thumb thing that uh, you see a lot in, in many different uh, churches and denominations. Some people use it more than other when the pastor's preaching or whatever, talking, you hear people, Christians shouting, Amen, Amen, Hallelujah. I do that because, well, what it means is this is truth. This is truth. And uh, 
The Bible even says that God is the great amen. He is the truth. He is the truth. So it's just, it's tradition. You don't have to say it. And especially the, uh, uh, the more long-faced, horse-faced, restricted uh, types um, that they don't believe you should don't don't raise your hand your hand shouldn't raise any higher than your shoulder and they make all rules that, that there are places actually to teach that uh there'll be there'll be guys at the door of the church with rulers to measure your hair and if it's too long they won't let you in and they'll stand there with with uh with robes and stuff that well i don't like what you're wearing they'll put a robe over you and it's i i hate it I really hate legalism. I really do. It, it drives me up the wall. I can't stand it. I, I can barely contain myself when when all of these arbitrary rules are taught as law. I hate with a passion arbitrary rules. The whole just because thing. I can't stand that when they have no good reason, especially when you can't back it up by the word of God. I can't stand arbitrary rules. Anyways, how do we get on that again? Amen just means this is the truth. And you don't have to say it. Some people do. And it's just, if you agree, if someone says something that is biblical truth, biblical doctrine, amen. That's the truth. That's the way. Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen. Shout it. Loud and proud, it is the truth to declare that this is truth. That's all it means. Uh... Okay, Mrs. G says, some turn medicine into their God or the doctor's their savior. We're talking about the whole medicine debate thing. Yeah, Christians run to the doctors faster than they do to God. They'll turn to the cupboards uh, to get their medicine boxes. They'll turn to the pharmacy more than they will pray about it. Yeah, and that, that's a problem. That is a big problem. But the medicine in and of itself is not is not wrong. Abuse of it is. And Kimberly says, oops, I'm drinking coffee this morning. Yikes. Yep, you lost your salvation. Yep, there you go. <laughs> okay. Jules says, yeah, Angela, at this church, I visited the husbands, dressed their wives, and, and like you, smart and appropriately covered, but the explanation was so the men don't get tempted by attractiveness. Well, I, I can see their, their point there, but that's not that the the way they go about this uh, it is wrong like for example driving cars is not sin breaking the breaking the the highway traffic laws is sin we are to obey the laws of the land and say say don't not, not not to go above this or not to drive like this not to sport sport race down the highway and all this stuff that that's wrong is breaking the law well going against that would be sin so driving the car is not sin but breaking the law is sin eating foods not sin gluttony is sin so but but their idea there is we got to restrict we got to control it's like condemning all television because there's a there's an there's a a possible temptation to watch something that's not right so we got to ban all television well it's like banning food to avoid gluttony it doesn't make sense see what they're, they're going about the wrong way if individuals have problem have have pro problems with uh 
with lusting that they they need to get that dealt with but at the same time women shouldn't be dressing all sexualized for church that's not right that's not appropriate that's not appropriate either you're going there to worship the lord and you should be addressing appropriately in honor of god not, not to draw attention to yourself if it's all about yourself you're doing this to try to up the joneses kind of thing then your whole heart and, and attitude is wrong so it comes you got to look at the uh, attitude of the heart not the thing the attitude of the heart okay angela says do you think youth group is good for christian kids absolutely yeah i i grew up in church youth groups um most of my life a uh, lot of fun a lot of great time a lot of studies a lot of bible memorization uh, it was, it's really good it's it's good to have uh christian influences on kids and young people they gotta go with other christians have christian fellowship because look at the amount of non-christian fellowship they have in in the world uh, through uh through school and work and everything else society and social media everything else they need good proper right christian um influences and youth group is really good for that um actually i started actually uh, years and years ago i started as the youth pastor uh, um, uh, what my job was to help uh, organize and to bring the bible studies and devotionals and all that kind of stuff uh, it's 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 really good to gather them together to help them because kids on their own aren't going to most most part seek these things out themselves that they need influences to help them to learn how to study their bibles and they need it more than just at home they need church influence as well they need the gathering influence so yeah okay <clears throat> okay going down through the comments Uh, Paris Vaughn has a comment here. What about saying, gosh, golly, jeepers, and all those kinds of things? I hear a lot of Christians say these words, and they're just pretend versions of God's name as expletives. Isn't it still technically God's name in vain? Like 90% of Christians use these words or similar ones. Yes, they're called Christian cuss words, where you take an actual vulgarity and you just kind of mod it just a little bit. And and you say the mod because oh, I'm not saying the official word, but the say, saying the almost word is okay. Well, I, I'm not fully fornicating. It's not the full thing, but it's almost, so it's okay. Huh? It, it, you see the logic there. It's the same thing. You're just supplementing one word for another to, to give the same impression, the same thing. You're literally saying the same thing by proxy. You're cursing by proxy. You're blaspheming by proxy. It, because you're taking a blasphemous uh, term or a vulgarity and you're just supplementing it. You're doing the same thing. Expletive for purpose uh, of... Uh, for purpose of exclaiming like that that's vulgarities and the bible has a lot to say about that actually 
And if I can find my notes, I should have had this up earlier. Um, I did a whole talk on this a while ago on vulgarities. There it is. Ephesians 5, 4. Neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. Colossians 3.8, but now ye also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. 2 Timothy 2.16, but shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness. James 3.10, out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. So God condemns vulgarities and all that kind of thing. And yes, we all do it from time to time. And we sometimes let things slip. And but the Lord says that shouldn't be the case. You shouldn't be doing that. that. That's the flesh speaking. The flesh is speaking. And vulgarities go, go completely against the testimony of Christ likeness. Jesus didn't speak like that. That's filthy talking, fool, foolish talking. That's that's corrupt communication. That's that's speaking uh, according to the flesh. That's not Christ like. God doesn't talk like that, and He doesn't expect us to. And so we need to curb our speech. It's better to say nothing than to say something wrong. Just hold your tongue. You don't need to say anything. You don't need to use expletives. People say, well, now you're being too strict. Now you're being a Pharisee. No, because I'm quoting scripture. You're condemning pants isn't scripture. You're condemning coffee isn't scripture. But speaking about vulgarities and foolish talking is scripture. You see, you are adding uh, uh, traditions of men as doctrines. I'm using actual biblical doctrine. You see? So people say, well, you're just being like that. No, because I'm actually using Bible. They're not. So, but yeah, the, uh, and especially like, for example, in the comment here, we see gosh, golly, jeepers, gosh, darn. Those are, uh, modified blasphemies. The OMGs is blasphemy. It's flippant, irreverent misuse of the mention of God for a cheap expletive. That's blasphemy. That's using the mention of God, the names of God, for uh, for vain talk, foolish talk, and expletive. That's blasphemy. And the same as everything else, uh, the other forms of, of vulgar words, uh, cuss words, the Bible condemns it. It says it's wrong, that's sinful, and not, uh, not so to be, blessing and cursing, uh, foolish talk, talking, corrupt communication. So give that some thought. The, that's what the Bible says. That's what God says. So our feelings and opinions are irrelevant. Yeah. So yeah, be very careful what you talk. It's very important. Okay, and it's uh, other things too. Like uh, you take a look at these words, uh, these definitions uh, of expletives. What what does it come from? What what it, what does it mean? And you're using that as uh, as a as a description of your attitude, a description of how you feel, a description of, of the circumstance. Uh, and the Bible calls that corrupt communication, filthy talking. The Bible calls it filthy communication. Ought not so to be. Don't allow it. It's better to, to not say anything. It's better just bite your tongue. Just 
clench your teeth clench your teeth um when i first got saved i had a big problem with that because uh, i was a very foul-mouthed individual i i had no problem saying horrible stuff talking really bad and the lord really got a hold of me on that one and uh, what i found is what i did when i started feeling like i want to say i would just clench my teeth i'd clench my teeth i just wouldn't say anything i would let it go past i wouldn't say anything regarding any form anytime any form i i, I would just clench my teeth if i felt something like that and i had to train myself not to cuss not to speak uh, filthily and the the flesh is really strong the flesh really wants that the flesh has to have it it's a part of our culture and it's the way it's always been and well then the culture's wrong and the way it's always been is wrong because god says it's wrong and it's sin how i feel what i think is right and what i feel it's it's all irrelevant what does the lord say you don't need to to talk in that sewer talk you don't need to use gutter language it doesn't need to be and especially it shouldn't be in the mouth of a saint with that where the mouth is supposed to be salted with grace and that's so that you may know how you ought to answer every man our mouths to speak the word of god to speak the blessings of christ speak the word of god so how can you how can you be speaking the things of god and talking like the gutter at the same time it doesn't work it, it corrupts your testimony so yeah. Purely says every time you do the legalistic grumpy voice, my son cracks me up. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've abstained from everything fun this week. Praise him. <laughs> but legalist says, yeah, I've I've abstained from everything fun. So yeah, give this some thought. What is a true Christian? Is it is someone a Christian because they do or don't do? Are you a Christian because you did a thing? Or are you a Christian because you believe? You're Christian because of the belief of your heart. You're Christian because of the belief of doctrine, the belief of the gospel, not because of traditions and catechisms and commentaries and denominational distinctives that people say say now you're christian don't drink don't smoke don't dance don't do this don't watch television don't do this don't do this don't do that don't do this don't do that don't do this i'm sorry are we christians or jews now i'm confused because we see in the bible let's just you know what let's just read it acts 15. Acts chapter 15. Okay. Acts chapter 15, verse 5. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 15. I would like you to read this. I would like you to see this yourself, okay? All right. <clears throat> Acts chapter 15, starting at verse 5. But there rose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees which believed. So some Pharisees got saved. Okay, Some Pharisees got saved. They believed in Christ. But they also had a problem with their, with their thinking that they still needed to keep the law. Keep, keep and hold all of the law. 
But there rose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees which believed, saying that it was needful to circumcise them, the Gentiles. This is referring to the Gentiles because the Gentiles also believed. It was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Okay? Verse 6, And the apostles and elders came together for to consider this matter regarding the Gentiles. What should we do? And when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, ye know how that a good while ago God made choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Remember when uh, Peter was called uh, 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 called of God to go to the Gentiles, this one, who was it, the... Uh, I can't remember where it was, but the men came and 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 they called him because the one uh, uh, elder had a, had the vision of the angel co coming to him, telling him to send for Peter to come and tell you. And he'll tell you of the gospel. And then Peter was up on the rooftop praying and had the vision. The Lord brought down the net full of animals. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, "Not so, Lord, for for, for I've never eaten anything uh, uh, unclean." And the Lord says, "Call not unclean what I have cleansed." And we see the Lord then has had removed. The dietary laws and restrictions is teaching Peter this is we're under grace, not law now. And so that when Peter would go to the Gentiles, he would eat whatever's put in front of him by the Gentiles. That's what he's referring to here. Um, I got, God called me, I should go to the Gentiles, and by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us, and put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith, not works. Now, therefore, why tempt ye God? You are tempting God, putting a yoke upon the neck of the disciples which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear but we believe that through the grace of the lord jesus christ we shall be saved even as they then all the multitude kept silence and gave audience to barnabas and paul declaring what miracles and wonders god had wrought among the gentiles by them and after they had held their peace james answered saying men and brethren hearken unto me Simeon hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles, and to make out of them a people for his name. And to this agree the words of the prophets, as it is written, After this I will return, and will build again the tabernacle of David, which is fallen down, and I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up, that the residue of men might seek after the Lord, and all the Gentiles, upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things. It was even prophesied in the Old Testament about the Gentiles getting saved by the gospel. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. Wherefore, my sentence is this, that we trouble not them which from among the Gentiles are turned to God, but that we that write unto them that they abstain from pollutions of idols. That's idolatry and pollutions of idols, even meat sacrificed to idols, you know, to eat food that, is, that has been blessed by false gods. Abstain from pollutions of idols, from fornication, from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses of old time hath in every city them that preach him being read in the synagogue every Sabbath day. And it pleased the apostles and elders of the whole church. Okay, and going down. Verse 24. For as much as we heard that certain which went out from us have troubled you with words, subverting your souls, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment. 
It seemed good unto us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men unto you with with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men that have hazarded their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have sent therefore Judas and Silas, who shall also tell you the same things by, by mouth, for it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that we abstain from meats offered to idols, and from blood, from things strangled, and from fornication, from which if you keep yourselves, you should do well, fare ye well. But if we go over to... Um, First Timothy. First Timothy chapter four. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared to the hot iron, forbidding to marry, commanding to abstain from meats. which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good and nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God in prayer. And we go over to Galatians. And I want chapter 3, verse 21. Is a law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law... If there had been a law given, which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. Okay, do you understand what that verse means? If there had been a law, which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. But what is the law for? The law was given for the unrighteous, not the righteous. The law is your schoolmaster to sin. The law was given for the purpose of showing you how you are a sinner before God and how you have no goodness, no righteousness in and of yourself. That's why you need the righteousness of God. Keeping the law does not make you righteous because you can't keep the law. That's the whole point of it. But that the law, by definition, according to the word of God, is a curse. As it says, the law is a curse. The law was not given for righteousness. It was given for condemnation because the law curses. The law condemns. The law, the law shows you how you have no goodness. You can't keep the law. As the Bible says, if you think you have to keep the law, then you're a debtor to do all of the law. But the point is, you can't keep the law because you've already broken it. And that's why it's there, to show you you're condemned. <laughs> you can't keep the law. These law-keeping, legalistic, pharisaical Judaizers have no idea what they're talking about. They don't understand the scriptures. They don't understand grace. And they're making up stuff, thinking that keeping law makes them righteous when all they're doing is condemning themselves even more. There you go. Okay. 
<laughs> okay. All right, so Angela has a question. What do you think about Jonathan, Jonathan Edwards? Someone gave me his book and was wondering if I should read it. From what I understand of Jonathan Edwards, I've read some stuff from him. He did. He wrote the, the famous legendary sermon, uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Wow! I'm telling you, if you want to hear a hellfire brimstone sermon like you've never heard before in your life, give that a read. I'm telling you. Uh, the story is that Jonathan Edwards fasted and prayed for a couple days before he gave this message. He fasted and prayed and he wrote this up. And then when he got up in the pulpit, he didn't even really preach. He just stood there and he just read it. He didn't, you know, boom it. He just read it. He just read this sermon and the report is that the people were freaking out. There were so many people terrified, terrified that the floor was going to open up and they were going to fall into hell. They were holding on to the pews and a huge revival broke from that message. It was a powerful, powerful, powerful preacher. That fantastic, right? He is the one that I quote all the time. He's the one that says that we bring nothing to the table of our salvation other than the sin that made it necessary. That's Jonathan Edwards. Powerful uh, preacher. So yeah, uh, he's got some excellent stuff. So yeah, I, I'd recommend him. Okay. Um, let's take a look. Um, uh, Jules says, my granddad used to say, oh yeah. Yeah, and it, those, those terms. You know, we know what those terms are pretending to say and if we actually take a look at those words and what their definitions of that's extreme immorality extreme perversion that's perverted talk shouldn't be used and i know we're all guilty we've all done it and we can all do better and the word of god says that we should guard our speech I will allow no corrupt communication to proceed out of my mouth, is what the Bible says. Um, we should take that to heart. We should really consider our speech. Be, be aware of what we're saying. Um, and if I can quote Abraham Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln said, Think twice, speak once. Think twice, speak once. That's, that's a good rule. That's a pretty good rule. Uh, be be mindful of what you're saying. Don't just react. Reactionary speech, reactionary talk is often corrupted, and you're not being mindful of what you're saying. We should always be mindful of what we're saying. So, and we want to emulate Christ, don't we? And Christ was very mindful of everything that he said. He was very careful of everything he said, and so should we. We should we should seek to emulate even the way that Jesus talked. All right. Okay, let's go down through. Angela says, I'm kind of over these Reformation writers. Cheers. Exactly. Um, now, uh oh, I'm tapping. It's drumming. I lost my salvation. Okay. Um, yeah, the, many of many of the of the reform writers were Christians. 
some individuals and oh they were because they were calvinist or this or that what saves you did they believe that salvation was by grace through faith by belief alone in the lord god jesus christ alone ignore everything else just for a moment did they believe in the specifics of the gospel of itself of, of who jesus is what he came to do do they believe he died on the cross for their sins was buried rose again the third day according to the scriptures do they believe that do they believe that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone did they believe that then they're saved everything else is secondary give that some thought so these individuals many of them born again christians um is there things you could glean from some of their writings, some of their books? Can you glean some things from from their from their writings? Yeah, yeah, you can. Many of them have some great stuff. Many of them have some great stuff. But do you have to have it? Do you need it? No. Can it be a distraction and a hindrance? Yes. Big time. Big time. Yes. Because what happens is people take individuals like these and uphold them as equal to the apostles. That the writings of the reformed writers is equal to the scriptures. That you can't read the Bible without reading their books as well. That's Catholic logic. That's Jehovah's Witness logic. That's Mormon logic. You can't read the Bible unless you have our writings as well. And that's a big problem because these guys will tell you what to believe they'll tell you what the bible says no 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 absolutely not and many a time extra books and all the, these writings are distractions and hindrances and big time problems they get in the way and you can't just study the bible in and of itself just put your arm on the table sweep everything onto the floor put the bible down that's all you need take your bible read it slowly pray talk to the lord while you are reading it read it slowly pay attention to the specific words and do the word studies cross cross reference with the bible don't cross reference the bible with other things what does it say do the word studies. That's the reason why we teach the three points of Bible study and the principles of Bible study. The clear interprets the unclear and how to study the Bible. You don't need commentaries, catechisms, councils, and creeds, and all those stuff. Throw it all out the window. It's all out the window. It's unnecessary. Don't need it. It gets in the way. It's other people's opinions of what they think the Bible says. Learn to study it yourself. Learn to be a student of scripture, not just a religious sponge where you just sit in the pews and just soak it and just regurgitate and parrot what the person in the pulpit says. You need to study it yourself. See, this is why we believe it. This is what it's about. And you need to be a student yourself. Do the work. So yeah, ignore other writings, other sources. You don't need it. It's unnecessary. It gets in the way. And what you're doing is you're elevating people to the level of, 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 of primary Bible teacher. The primary Bible teacher is the Holy Spirit. Through the mouth of the apostles and the prophets, this is the canon of Scripture. 
Don't add to the canon of scripture the reformed writers. We're ticking everyone off today. <laughs> All right. But yeah, I don't really read anyone else's books anymore. I, I used to. I don't anymore. I haven't for a long time. I haven't for a long time. I got tons and tons and tons of books on my bookshelf. I don't even really touch them. It's unnecessary. I have the Bible. And Im implying that you can't just have the Bible is a problem. That That's error. That's wrong. This teaches everything by the Spirit of God. If you are born again, saved, you have the Spirit of God within you, the best teacher that there is, and he will teach you all things and cause you to be in remembrance of everything where I have told you. You don't need the Reformed writers. And often, very often, the Reformed writers have a lot of corrupt ideas anyways. All right. So Angela says, are you saying that we as Christians can rest in grace and have peace knowing that we don't have to earn our salvation through works? No, I'm not saying it. God is. God said it. I'm just repeating it. But yes, uh, we can rest in grace and have peace knowing that our salvation is not affected by our doing or not doing. Okay. Hey, Angela says, my pastor is quoting Reformation writers more than the apostles. It makes, it makes me mad. And therein proves everything that I just said. That he upholds the Reformed writers as equal to the Bible. That's a problem. And if you want my opinion, leave that church. Do what you want. I'm not telling you what to do, but if I was sitting there and I heard that, I would get up and leave right in the middle of the service. No. I, I, I won't put up with that. That's wrong. I wouldn't do it. Okay. Okay. Um, how long are we going here? Two hours, six minutes. Okay, we got to wrap this up. So we got the last few comments here. Last few uh, questions. This will have to be it, and uh, then we're gonna wrap this up. Okay. Hope you don't mind. Uh, okay. Let's take it. Okay. Uh, hey, Angela says Martin Luther used to be my hero, but 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 I I but I now know Jesus is my hero. Okay. So, like for example, Martin Luther has some great stuff, but what you do is you want to double check everything he says because he's not an apostle. He's not, he wasn't chosen by God to be one of the writers of scripture. He's a preacher of the scriptures. His words, Martin Luther's words, are not inspired of God and preserved by God. The words of the apostles that are preserved by God, inspired by God, are what's canonized in the Bible. Martin Luther is just preaching off of the Bible. So we, don't, we don't want to go to Martin Luther. We want to go to what has inspired Martin Luther, which is the scriptures. Take a look at some of the things that Luther said and see what does the Bible say. We double check everything with the word of God. Don't double check the scriptures with Martin Luther. Luther's got some excellent stuff. But again, 
that goes into the secondary category. And you don't allow Martin Luther to inspire your understanding of the Bible. That's what we got to be very careful of. That's what the Reformed individuals are doing. Okay. Um, okay, I'm going to go back. I'm going to touch on your question regarding the flood in just a moment. I just want to finish up the uh, context that we're talking about here. And Mrs. G says, women's ministry has been such a turnoff with the studies and conferences I found in Baptist churches I've been to. I did a, a Beth Moore one as I didn't know who she was. Yeah, there's a lot of corrupt conferences and people out there. And we want to double check everything. Listen, what, what they are saying compared to the word of God. And if they contradict the word of God, then they're wrong. And so we want to hear scripture, we want to hear doctrine, we want to hear the proper Bible teaching. And nobody is outside uh, of correction. Nobody is excluded from being uh, corrected and double-checked by Scripture, to be tested by Scripture. So, yeah. All right. And we don't want to go because of den uh, denomination. Denominationalism, that doesn't mean anything. As you want to look at what does the Bible teach? What is a Christian according to the word of God? What does the Bible teach regarding grace and salvation? What is it teaching this? And if other people believe in the in the gospel according to scripture, the doctrines according to scripture, then they, they are like-minded. They are our brothers and sisters in Christ and denomination is irrelevant. Okay. <clears throat> Jen has a question. When the flood happened, why do I hear scientists? Oh, sorry, I'm going to have to come back to because as Paris Vaughn says here, Luther's doctrine, yeah. This is a problem a lot of people regarding Martin Luther. Uh, in his earlier years, after he got saved, he used to be a Roman Catholic monk in the Augustinian order, as Augustine was not a Christian, he was a Catholic. Um, Martin Luther got saved out of that, and in his earlier years, he had a lot of unlearning to do. And he did a lot of writings in his earlier years that actually were corrupt. Like, for example, if you actually read the 95 Theses, uh, there's some bad doctrine in the 95 Theses. Because uh, that's still his earlier years. But he un unlearned the, these things and he learned the truth. And his later years, he he recanted these corruptions. So a lot of people are, are, are holding Martin Luther and condemning him because of his writings in his earlier years, and then don't understand that in his it's his later years is what he's what he was good in. Uh, he was not a baptismal regenerationist. He condemned a lot of the stuff that he actually believed in his earlier years. He condemned it in his later years. So be mindful of that. Yeah. Okay. So go back to the question here about the flood. When the flood happened, why do I hear scientists quotation marks finding millions year old animals but not human fossil remains uh it's called deliberate corrupted bias um now okay to follow up uh, just like where uh, where are all the remains from the humans perished in the flood not saying i don't believe in the flood well they find them they find them they find them uh they just don't like to talk about it uh, they don't like to, because that kind of goes against their evolutionary teaching. Um, 
they make up uh, all kinds of stupid things make up stupid arguments and explanations the whole million uh, uh, this rock is 10 billion years old well okay well how'd you figure that carbon dating carbon carbon that comes from biomatter uh rocks don't have biomatter so how can you carbon date a rock Yeah, so there's a lot of issues with with uh, their even their method, and, and let alone uh, here's the thing, uh, when you take a look at the Bible, when God made everything, I thought of this a while ago, and I used this argument in, in a debate that that I held uh, with, a, with an atheist. Uh, this kind of confounded him because he thought he had me, but then I explained it in this way. I says, you know, you read in the Bible where God made the earth. Uh, when he says, let the dry land bring forth all the stuff. Uh, when God made the plants, did he make the, make the, did the plants start as seeds? When God says, let the dry land bring forth every creeping thing, bring forth the cattle and all the, all the creatures. So, were all of these animals and creatures, did, did, were they, did they start as embryos? Or, or did they or they appear as full grown full matured creatures and the plants and trees and bushes and everything did they appear as full grown full fledged matured plants when god made the earth he made the earth with the appearance of age so that when adam came on the scene he looked at it it would have looked like it had been there for a long time then God, God made the earth. There were mountains and, and valleys and lakes and rivers and oceans and stuff. The, the earth was made with the appearance of age. Uh, creation was made with the appearance of age. When God made the stars, the light was already here. Though he didn't have to wait for millions of years for the light to travel from the star to the earth. As many scientists say, because we can see the stars and it takes the light millions of years. That's why we, that's how we know it's millions of years old. No, it was he created the light first, FYI then he made the star the light from the star was already here he made everything with the appearance of age that's what scripture shows in this one now the whole thing with the whole uh why are they finding millions of real animals but no people that's called deception because if they found million year old people that kind of completely refutes their evolutionary ideas and logic they are deliberately lying and manipulating the science to prove and verify their evolutionary ideology like for example they have found dinosaur footprints and dinosaur creatures with human footprints and human bones and skeletons stuff they've found it together but they don't tell you about that they have found in limestone uh, under a river uh, they, they excavated a river and found in, in limestone layers they actually found dinosaur footprints with human footprints inside the dinosaur footprints but they don't report that because that kind of goes against their their entire teaching that humans were never with the dinosaurs they deliberately skew the science they deliberately misrepresent it they deliberately lie they deliberately 
misrepresent the history and all the stuff on purpose so that they can try to justify and prove their stupid macro evolutionary ideology they didn't know i say macro because there's there's micro evolution macro evolution micro evolution is speciation uh where like the hummingbirds stay hummingbirds but you see the species of the different kinds of hummingbirds darwin's finches they stayed finches they didn't become hummingbirds or bald eagles or 10 pound bass they stayed finches macro evolution is where the finch becomes a crocodile or the fish becomes a frog which becomes a lizard which becomes a monkey which becomes a man that's the that's the regular evolutionary taught of macro evolution that the crocodile laid an egg and the duck crawled out so uh there's the difference here micro and macro so you hear many christians say well all evolution is wrong no the word it, it, to evolve we see an, an evolution of speciation uh, from the original dogs came all the different kinds of species of dogs all you got the huskies and the great and the great danes and the greyhounds and the chihuahuas that's speciation that's called microevolution. macro is the dog can turn into a cat and a hummingbird so yeah uh but what the evolutionary uh, what, the, what the evolutionary scientist does is they is they deliberately deliberately skew the science hide the, the things that can disprove them, uh, they've actually been caught red-handed multiple times, actually deliberately dumping finds and archaeological discoveries, all this, dumping it in the ocean. They have been caught red-handed. The Smithsonian Museum has been caught red-handed multiple times, deliberately destroying evidence that would have disproved the evolutionary model. Yeah, but they don't report on that. Because what's the alternative? There would be a God. That Darwin was wrong. They can't do that. The man lived the dinosaurs. <laughs> can't teach that. So yeah. That's what the Bible talks about science falsely so-called. There's true science and then there's science falsely so-called. Science falsely so-called is so-called made-up science for the purpose of teaching something that goes against what the Word of God says, that goes against the truth of what God has said, what God has done, what God has proved, and, and so on. So yeah, there you go. Okay. Uh, Jenna says, yes, you were the first person I heard say the earth was made with the appearance of age. It makes so much sense. Well, yeah, because really, when you, you look at it, you read it. God said that, that the waters bring forth dry land. And then it came. And I just, just think about it. What would it have looked like? Valleys, hills, mountains. Okay. What, 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 what would that... If you stood there, what would that look like? It's been around for a long time. And then God says, let the dry land bring forth trees and all the plants and stuff. And then just, boom, boom, there, there it is, all the trees, the redwoods, full-grown redwoods and pine trees, maple trees and everything else going on. And then let the dry land bring forth every creeping thing. And mm, there comes all the bears and the tigers and the cows and dogs and all this stuff. It comes out. 
and let the waters bring forth the fish and the fowl of the air. And there it was, blue whales and sharks and killer whales and seagulls and ravens with the appearance of age. There you go. So, yeah. Uh, Genesis. Oh, uh, see, I never, I never heard that. That there's dinosaur footprints with human footprints. Yeah, th there is. That uh, there's tons and tons of it. You fi find a lot of it. Um, um, actually, I got videos. I have videos uh, in playlists. Uh, there's two different playlists. Uh, the playlist here on our channel, um, proving the Bible true. It has a, a ton of videos in there on archaeological discoveries that prove the Bible true. And also there's a, um, a second playlist, uh, Kent Hovind, his creation seminar. He does an excellent job. He shows you a ton of this stuff. Um, uh, proofs uh, of uh, people with dinosaurs, all this stuff. Dinosaurs have been with man all down through. Did you know there was a Triceratops in France in the 1500s? They had to get knights to kill it because it was terrorizing the farms and, and destroying farms and, and being a, a terror and, and they couldn't get rid of it. So they had to bring in some knights to kill it. A, a Triceratops in France in the 1500s. There are pterodactyls in Arizona to this day, but they won't report on that. The media deliberately squashes all these reports because it goes against their evolutionary model. Yeah. It, the, the, the proof's there, but you see that, 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 that what God hate will do, how far God hate will go. Um, it's hard to find a good source. Yeah, because again, a lot of these places, they get they get squashed but there are some great uh, great sources there um there's a, a book in the beginning by walter brown in the beginning by walter brown uh it's an excellent excellent book he's a scientist and he's a born-again christian and he shows you about creation and especially noah's flood uh, uh from a from a christian scientist's viewpoint reading the bible and then he explains it according to the bible this is how it would have happened according to the bible and it's an excellent book uh in the beginning by walter brown and you got kent hovind you got ken ham um you got uh there are sites out there that'll show you uh, uh, all this kind of stuff There's, there are many sources um yeah uh you just gotta dig for it but the media tries and the evolutionist tries to squander it uh, the atheists try to hide it and suppress it but just do the due diligence and you will come across it um and uh paris vaughn says also uh, john mckay yeah there's a great uh, christian and scientist uh and uh he travels the world and he finds all this kind of stuff all, all these uh pieces and um archaeological discoveries to prove the bible true he does excellent work on that called john mckay look him up uh, by the creation research institute look that up creation research institute uh, incredible debater that some atheists refuse to debate him because he has answers for everything yeah so yeah check it out yeah not to mention the bible the bible speaks of dinosaurs as well yeah in the book of job uh yeah, the dinosaurs, uh, the Leviathan and Behemoth. Leviathan was a fire-breathing dragon, and Behemoth was like a brontosaurus-type creature. The Bible talks about them, describes them in detail. They were real creatures. People say, well, no, you see, Behemoth was an elephant. 
Oh, okay. I didn't know elephants had a tail that moved like a giant cedar. It was a hippopotamus. Is it? No, see, a hippopotamus's tail, those little waggy tail things. It's not. And Leviathan, oh, that was a whirlpool. Oh, I didn't know whirlpools had scales that fit so closely together and had glowing eyes and they breathed fire out of its nose and a giant teeth like swords and bones like steel and that people were terrified of its fierceness. Uh, yeah, you take a look at what the Bible says and, and, the, and you pay attention to what the scripture says and you ignore the naysayers. What the Bible says is true. What the Bible says is true. So believe the Bible over the opinions of any man. So... A truly wise man is he who always believes the Bible against the opinion of any man. R.A. Torrey, powerful preacher. So remember that, hold to that. It doesn't matter what anyone else says. It doesn't matter, doesn't matter, doesn't matter. The clear interprets the unclear. You pay attention to what scripture says. The clear interprets the unclear. If the Bible says it, that's what the clear truth is. And everything else is just confusion, chaos, and nonsense. What the Bible says is true. Hold to the scriptures over the opinions of any man. All right? Clear interprets the unclear. Okay, and uh, Paris Vaughn says, And the cedar tree they would be uh, speaking of in the Middle East, is the great cedar of Lebanon, a gigantic tree, not the small cedar trees uh, of, of North America. Yeah. And also, you want to pay attention to that kind of thing and do the research of, in the areas where the Bible says on these. That's why you do the word studies, con uh, context studies, all that. It's so important. There's so much to go in, and we don't have time for everything else. We've got to wrap this up. This has been great. Lots of stuff here. This has been a lot of fun, so thank you so much for joining in, folks. If you appreciate these studies, please give this a like, give us a thumbs up. Make sure you subscribe, hit notification bell icon so you know we put up new videos and check out all our other videos. We've got tons and tons of other content as well as our website, christiancoffeetime.ca. Please make sure you check that out. we got links to all our other platforms, links to all our goodies. We've got free downloadable gospel track PDFs. Uh, tons of stuff there, so please make sure you avail yourself to that. And like I mentioned, please check out our playlists. Um, uh, Proving the Bible True, and you'll see another playlist. You scroll down in the playlist uh, uh, section, you'll see the Kent Hoven Creation Seminar. Please make sure you give that a watch. He's got some excellent stuff there. Really, really good stuff. As I was checking out John McKay with Creation Research Institute, please make sure you check that out. And the book that I mentioned, In the Beginning by Walter Brown. In the Beginning by Walter Brown. He's got some excellent stuff in there. So uh, that'll really get you going. If you are interested in uh, creationism according to the Bible, Young Earth Creationism, which is the only true biblical creationism, Young Earth Creationism, please make sure you, you uh, look into that. And with that, we'll wrap that up there. Thank you so much for joining in, folks. This has been a great time. I had so much fun. And uh, even though we all got stirred up, we tried to keep it light. We tried to keep it on point. So you know what you know how it's like. So with that, again, folks, God bless you. God bless all those who love our Lord God, Jesus Christ. God bless all those who love his holy word. Hope to see you again. And as always, if I don't see you again, I'll see you in the sky. God bless.